If you have a Bible, you can open to John's Gospel, chapter 8. We'll look at verses 12 through 20 this morning, and the text is printed on the next page of the bulletin for you. John 8, 12 through 20. Uh, this week, Jerry went with our oldest son, Ransom, on his class's field trip to the Ape Cave uh, near Mount St. Helens up in Washington. Um, maybe it's a place you're familiar with. It's a pretty cool local attraction, uh, somewhat local, two and a half hours away. But uh, the cave is the longest lava tube in the continental United States, and it was created by an eruption about 1,900 years ago. It's cold and it's dark all the time, doesn't matter, day or night, summer or winter, it's cold and it's dark in there, so everyone had to be prepared going in. Their warm clothes were pretty much ruined by the fact that they went on a mile-long hike uh, through the pouring rain beforehand, and so then they were uh, shivering the rest of the way, they were uncomfortable. But probably worse than the cold uh, was the dark. Probably worse, uh, they they had a, a little fun when they were deep inside the cave, when there's no ambient light making its way down deep deep inside the cave, uh, and everyone turned off their lights. They all had flashlights and lanterns and things like that. Everybody turned off their lights, pitch black, right? nary a stray photon. And that actually could have been quite terrifying. You can imagine if the flashlights had broken, maybe because of the cold, <laughs> and uh, they wouldn't turn back on for some reason, all of them. Um, They would have been in real trouble. The kids would have been stumbling around in the dark, getting hurt, getting lost, unable to find their way back out. So probably a great relief uh, that the flashlights still worked and turned back on. Light is an important part of uh, our lives, which we probably often take for granted. Light, physical light, right? It's the first thing God spoke into being at creation. It's the first thing we have recorded as Him speaking into being in Genesis chapter 1. By light, we can see the world around us and learn about uh, things, right? We can learn about things in the world around us. It's much more difficult to interact with the world without it. Simple things like walking and navigation would be very difficult uh, without light. Complex things like science would, would probably be mostly impossible to do uh, without light. Light plays beautifully off of things, and it dances uh, through things, through certain medium, to our pleasure. And we play with light in our visual arts, uh, especially with the use of colors. And uh, light gives us a sense of comfort and security against the darkness, Sometimes light can be a bit overwhelming, even painfully so, like when someone turns on a light at night when you're sleeping, right? It hurts, you have to squint, or when you stare too long at a light that's too bright for your eyes, you shouldn't be staring at it, like the sun, for example, kids don't look at the sun for very long, or, um, or when light is focused into a laser beam or something, that could be painful, right? Um, but generally, everyone would say light is a good thing, light's a pleasant thing. Light's one of those universal symbols that's been used throughout history by all sorts of philosophers and uh, in religion, all different kinds of religion, use the symbol of light primarily to convey the idea of the goodness of knowledge. The goodness of knowledge, not just knowledge, 
but the goodness, because light's a good thing, right? The goodness of knowledge, it's good, it's desirable to be illuminated, to be enlightened. Knowledge, for the sake of living well, for the sake of interacting well with the world or with people around you, for the sake of doing life, um, the goodness of knowledge for the sake of living well, as opposed to the, the, the fear of the unknown or the faltering, stumbling that takes place in the blindness of the dark. <clears throat> so this morning we hear one of uh, Jesus' most profound statements about himself. It's one of the great I am statements that's recorded in John's gospel. He says, I am the light of the world. And that means that in him, we find the goodness of the knowledge of God for the sake of living well, for the sake of living in relationship with God. So Irenaeus, he said uh, that the life of man, so the life of humanity, our life, is the vision of God. If we see God, he's revealed to us. The life of man is the vision of God. In Jesus, we have this vision of God, the relational knowledge of God. It radiates to us from God, and it illuminates us for our comfort and our joy and our our real wisdom for life with God in this world. So uh, that's what we're going to talk about. Jesus is the light of the world. Uh, let's, uh, Let's pray, then we'll read the scripture. Father, you have sent your Son into the world, the light coming into the world to enlighten everyone, and we pray for this true biblical uh, divine enlightenment for all of us, that you would help us to see Christ and to see you in Christ for our life with you together Um, now as we consider your word, this gospel, this good news that comes to us about who Jesus is. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, O Christ. So right there at the end you have, it's the setting still is the, the fall feast of booths or feast of tabernacles. Uh, which is actually, this is a continuation from chapter 7. You remember uh, uh, the, the very beginning of John chapter 8, 
was sort of inserted after. It's not part of John's original gospel. So chapter 7 flows into chapter 8, and really maybe there shouldn't even be a chapter break there. But uh, it's still the same feast that Jesus had gone up to, uh, Jerusalem, gone up to the temple, and he's been teaching in the temple about the true wisdom that's found in him. With a relationship with Jesus, you can have true wisdom. You can have uh, uh, the knowledge of God for your life with God. Only you, you can only have this relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And he's been using the themes of the feast that he's at to teach about himself. So there were, there were there's sort of the overarching theme of the feast, right, which is a celebration, a reminder of um, when Israel had <clears throat> been wandering in the wilderness after the exodus from Egypt, and they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years before going into the promised land. <clears throat> That's sort of the, the, the overarching theme of the feast, but there are these two long-standing traditions that were celebrated at this feast, and I think the feast went on for like eight days. Um, two traditions primarily that he's drawing these themes from, as uh, we've looked at in John 7 and now John 8, the first one having to do with water, and the, other, the second having to do with light. Water and light. So we've already looked at the Jewish tradition of when they, they would take water into the temple, and they would pour it out in hope of the, the future glorious fulfillment of God's promises to create coming from the temple uh, the streams, the river of life that would flow out to the nations, right? So they would take water up and they would pour it out in the temple, hoping that maybe one of these times we'd actually see it happen where this little trickle becomes a raging torrent uh, of the, the river of life. And, um, and Jesus said, and he had um, sort of adopted this theme and this language for himself, he said in, in John 7, uh, verses 37 and 38, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so we've looked at that already. The, the other tradition was called the, the illumination of the temple. And this was every night as darkness was falling in the court of the women. So if you have a pretty simple picture of the temple uh, there was the outer court, the, the huge area outside, it's called the court of the Gentiles, where, you know, non-Jews, non-Israelites could come and they could worship there. But then just inside that uh, was the court of the women, and that's where men and women of Israel could go, but that's as far as the women could go. And then you have the, the inner courts successively where the men can go and the priests can go, and then one time a year the uh, high priest can go into the, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary, right? So it's... Um, in, in this court of the women uh, are the treasury boxes. We know that from stories um, like the, the one of the widow's mite, where Jesus is sitting by the treasury boxes and uh, an old woman comes up and plunks some coins in, right, little pennies. And, um, and so in the court of the women, the treasury boxes are there. People would bring their gifts, and Jesus is there now, right? Jesus is in that section now, and that's where the illumination of the temple, this old tradition, would take place because four giant lamps were lit. And these lamps were 75 feet high, so giant. And on top of them were these huge bowls that were filled with oil. And the wicks were, uh, were made of old priest's clothing. 
so interesting symbolism. You can think about that on your own. But, uh, and the light from these huge lamps not only illuminated the temple, but really illuminated the surrounding city. Um, everybody could see in the nighttime because of this illumination of the temple that took place during this feast, the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. So as the theme of the feast, the overarching theme of the feast was a remembrance of Israel's time in the wilderness. What happened when they were out there? How was God present with them? How did God lead them and guide them through the wilderness? This great firelight on these lamps symbolized God's guiding, protecting presence with them in the pillar of fire that uh, led them through the desert by day and by night. You can read about that in Exodus 13. So, <clears throat> so David, uh, light is a huge theme through the scriptures. David in the Psalms, Psalm 27, he says that the Lord, Yahweh, uses the personal covenant name of God. Not just any God, but this God, the one true God that we've come to know, the Lord is my light and my salvation. And he's probably thinking of you know, this great pillar of fire, and God's people all gathered around it and followed it, and it even protected them from their enemies, right? This great pillar of fire in the wilderness, the Lord is that fire, and he's my light, and he's my salvation. So now, as Jesus proclaims himself to be the light of the world, he's claiming more than just great knowledge, more than just great wisdom. He's claiming more than unique enlightenment. He's claiming divinity for himself. That's, that's what this claim is. It's a, it's a certain expression of God's own divinity because the Lord is our light, right? He's claiming divinity. He's claiming to be God's guiding presence and his protecting presence among his people. And he isn't just the pillar of fire in the wilderness that Israel, that one nation, would follow as they encounter hostility in the surrounding nations there out in the wilderness. He's the light of the world. He's the light of the world come to illuminate people from every nation so that if they follow him, then they'll have life with God. So he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. So with Jesus, it's not just Jews following the light on their way to the promised land, but it's Samaritans, those hated Samaritans. It's the Greeks, those jerks who are ruling over us right now, the Romans, you know. Um, it's Africans, it's Asians, it's North and South Americans. It's all people everywhere. Anyone who draws near to Jesus, who sticks with Christ, who looks to him for salvation, will come to know God and have a relationship with God and be able to live with him rather than apart from him. Jesus is saying, I'm the way to have that. And he, he really is saying, I'm the only way to have that. That becomes clear as you go through John's gospel. So uh, as Katie read in our Old Testament reading, Isaiah 42, God is speaking to his servant, and his servant we know... Uh, is Jesus Christ. He says, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. And in, in Isaiah 49, uh, there's several places in Isaiah where this theme is picked up, but Isaiah 49, he says, 
It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I'll make you a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel, and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. So this last bit from Isaiah 49 is interesting for us. The Lord's servant, the one whom God is speaking to, would be deeply despised and abhorred by the nation. That is Israel, the Jews. The people of Israel, the people to whom Jesus came first, he explicitly came first. And when he sends his apostles out, they go to the Israelites first, right? So they're first on God's radar, so to speak. Those people would reject him. They would deeply despise him and abhor him. God predicted that several hundred years before it happened. And they do that right here in this encounter in the temple with Jesus as he's teaching. Jesus claims to be the light of the world, and the Pharisees, who are some of the leaders of Israel, accuse him of being a liar. You're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony isn't true. We don't believe people when they give testimony about themselves. They're not confused about what he's saying. They know what he's saying. They're not confused about it. They're trying to dismiss it because they don't like it. Because it's an implicit judgment against them. We'll talk about what that means. For Jesus, came, uh, for, for Jesus to come as the light, for him to come as the light of the world into the world, into the darkness, it implies that they themselves are in the dark without him, apart from him. If they set themselves up against him, then they're dwelling in the darkness. For Jesus to come and offer himself as the only way to have a relationship with God, if you're going to have a relationship with God, you come through me, is what he says, to declare that you need Jesus if you're going to have the light of life. And there's no other way to have the light of life. It implies that you're separated from God without him, and everybody knows that's a bad place to be. Instinctively, intuitively, that's a bad place to be, separated from God. So, well, they can't just let him get away with statements like that, and they turn it into a debate about the legitimacy, the legality of bearing witness about oneself. So normally, it's pretty hard, especially when you think of a court, sort of a legal system, it's hard to accept someone's legal testimony about himself because we live in a world where people, normal people, everyday people, cannot be trusted. We live in a world where people can't be trusted because sinful human beings are liars. We know that. But Jesus isn't one of these. He's not like the rest of us. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I come from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Right, so Jesus, Jesus is God. He's the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. He's the Son of God. And he's the Son of God come in a flesh, uh, come in the flesh to be a human being, 
He had come from God and would be returning to God, and he was unique in that regard, absolutely unique. Nobody else is like this, which also means that he's the only one who actually knows that about himself. Nobody else could know that about him. The, The only other one who could possibly back up his testimony to his divinity, to his divine origin, to the fact that he was sent by God, the only one who could back that up would be God the Father himself, who had in fact testified by sending his son into the world in the first place. Right? The fact that Jesus was there, the fact that Jesus was there standing in front of these people was God's testimony because God the Father had sent him. And the only ones who really know that are God the Father and God the Son. It doesn't make a lot of sense to people in this world because we're looking for proof of that. We're looking for external corroboration. But you you can't prove ultimate truth like this. Nobody can prove this. There is no external corroboration to God's testimony about himself, certainly no ex- external corroboration that carries the same authority as God's own testimony about himself. So Leslie Newbigin says in his commentary on this <clears throat> passage, what witness can God call to validate his own revelation of himself? When the light shines in the darkness, it cannot prove itself to be light except by shining. And how can I know that it is the light? I have only the testimony of Jesus. I must either accept this testimony or else reject it because it's not corroborated by any witness from the world of human experience. Jesus is God. His authority is supreme and his testimony about himself is ultimate truth. And you can either embrace that ultimate truth on its own terms, on its own terms, or you reject it for reasons of your own. You either believe and accept what Jesus says about himself, or you refuse him because you don't like what he's saying. You don't like what he represents. You don't like the implications. And Jesus, because he is God with us, he's God among us, He's God's own light coming into the world to enlighten us for life with God. Jesus knows that we don't accept his testimony about himself because of the implicit judgment that it makes about us. Because of what it says about us. When Jesus talks about himself, it says things about us that we don't want to hear. And that's why we reject what he says about himself. So he continues in verse 15 and 16, he says, "'You judge according to the flesh.'" And that word judge is sort of the same word. Sometimes it's used to somewhat like discernment, you know, separating, clarifying, that sort of judgment. Sometimes it's used for condemn, to condemn. And that's actually, Jesus is sort of using them in, it in both ways in this passage. But he says, you judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet, even if I do judge... My judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So the Pharisees, as leaders of Israel, 
and really as representatives of all kinds of people. They're not just representatives of Israel. They're representatives of regular human beings, sinful human beings in rebellion against God who wish they could be right with God on their own terms. They judge according to the flesh or judge according to appearances or judge with merely human judgment is what this means, which really means that they end up condemning others. But Jesus doesn't judge anyone that way. He didn't come into the world. It says already in, in John's gospel, we've looked at this earlier, he didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. So Augustine um, said that the, the first dispensation of our Lord Jesus Christ, the first time he came into the world, is medicinal, not judicial. It's medicinal. It's, it's to restore. It's to save. The second time he comes, the return of Christ, the second coming of Christ, will be more judicial, more explicitly so. But the first time it's medicinal. He came to restore people to a right relationship with God on God's terms. Not ours, but on God's terms. He came from God to restore people to a right relationship with God. But again, implicit in this is judgment to some degree. Implicit in this is a reckoning of sorts because the only people who need that medicine, the only people who need that restoration are those who are broken and lost. And I don't like to hear that I'm broken and lost. I don't like to hear that I'm separate from God. I know that's a bad thing. I don't want to hear that. So even the good news of the fact that there's medicine for you, there's a solution for this problem, there's restoration available in Christ, even that good news comes across as bad news. To people like me, anyway. It's like a doctor coming to your aid to help you with a diagnosis and with a prescription for treatment. Like a doctor coming to your aid, it implies that you need aid. It implies that you're sick and that you would die apart from his help. And if you reject his help, you're already dead. And in that sense, yes, Jesus is a judge who reveals that there's something wrong with you that needs to be fixed. There's something broken about your relationship with God that needs to be restored. He knows because of where he came from. And he reveals, and he's the only one who can reveal because of where he came from. He alone knows. He alone reveals. And you need his knowledge and his revelation. He tells you about God. That is, he tells you about himself and about God the Father, because he is God, because he and the Father are one. He tells you about God. He tells you about himself. And he tells you about yourself. And everything he says is true because he is the son of the father. Because he's the ultimate truth. He's the reality behind all reality. And he knows. And he reveals what he knows. And when you believe what he has to say, then you have life with God. But when you don't believe what he has to say, you don't know God. In fact, you can't know God. And that's the real judgment. That's the real judgment. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. So you notice, they demand knowledge about Jesus' father. Maybe they're just thinking, he's talking about his earthly father. 
So summon him so he can give testimony about you or, or somehow they know he's talking about God but really are just kind of throwing that back at him. Yes, yeah, where's God's testimony? We don't understand this. This isn't making sense. We don't like it. Either way, they're demanding knowledge about Jesus' father, but Jesus doesn't say, this is important, Jesus doesn't say, oh, poor things, you've misunderstood me. Let me clarify. Let me say it in a language you can understand. Let me explain more about my father. Maybe you just haven't gotten it yet. I just need to use more words, simpler words, right? No, no, he knows that they do somewhere inside understand what he's saying. They just don't accept it. So he declares the real judgment. He says, if you know me, if you have a relationship with me where you trust me, you believe in me, you have faith in me, then you know my Father. But if you don't believe in me, you don't know my Father. That's what it boils down to. You believe Jesus and you know God, or you don't believe Jesus and you don't know God and you can't know God. And that's a very hard thing for anyone to hear, which is exactly why they keep looking for opportunities to arrest him and kill him, and eventually they, they do, but they'll fail to do that until he places them, himself in their hands when his hour finally comes according to his father's plan, and it's time. It's time to give himself up to death on a cross. Right? But John keeps reminding us of this coming hour. <clears throat> this is the third or fourth time it's happened in the last chapter or so. Um, here at the end of our passage, John keeps reminding us of this coming hour. So just this constant reminder, there's an hour coming, not yet, but there's an hour coming. Because it's good news. That hour is good news. It's a reminder that Jesus is who he says he is, because he predicted that hour. He is who he says he is, and that means he's the crucified one. He's the one abhorred and despised to the point of of, uh, cruel, torturous death. He's the crucified one. He's the one who goes to the cross, which is our salvation. He goes to the cross to save us because he loves us. The one who came from God and who would be returning to God, but only after he'd given up his life for us. Following this one, following this one means trusting the God who chose not to live without you. God chose not to live apart from you. And following Jesus means following that God. The God who wants you with him. God sent his son into the world to take your humanity to himself, united in a way he's never going to reject. He's never going to reject your humanity because it's part of who he is now to take your humanity to himself and to carry your humanity all the way back into God's heavenly presence. He came from God and he's returning to God by way of the most beautiful, terrible, sacrificial act of love. Jesus came from the Father for us. He went back to the Father for us, not just to reveal, not just to proclaim. It is that. It's a proclamation and a revelation, but not just to reveal what life with God looks like, but to be our life with God. He himself is our life with God. He's humanity living with God, and you can have that through a relationship with him. 
through faith in Him. Whoever follows Him by faith then will have the light of life. You will have relationship with God for life with God if you follow Him by faith. Jesus Himself is the fulfillment of the promise of God to be with us in such a way that we'll have the goodness of the knowledge of Him for life in this world. Uh, this, this is the promise that um, Isaiah spoke of, of in chapter 60 of his prophecy. <clears throat> he says that the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. And we saw that, um, we see that fulfilled in Revelation chapter 22. When it says, they have no more need, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's no more need for sun or moon or any lights, because God will be our light forever and ever. When we see Jesus face to face, night will be no more. There will be no more darkness. There will be no more life apart from God, stumbling around in the dark. And we will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be our light forever. And now... Tim Keller says, to walk in the light. To walk in the light is to look at the whole world through the gospel, handling everything in, in life in light of the gospel. So you ask questions like, what is life about? These are the questions that everybody should be asking. What is life about? How can I live well, whatever that means? What should I do with my life? What am I doing? What am I doing as I engage in the world and participate in relationships with other people? What am I doing? Not just what should I be doing, what am I doing? What, what am I doing and what should I be doing with my work? Or as I make decisions, whether they're big decisions, big transitional life decisions, or small everyday decisions, what am I doing? And what should those things be about? The one who follows Jesus by faith will see Jesus at the heart of of the answers to questions like these, all of our questions about life. Looking to Jesus for our life with God means seeing all of life as an opportunity to live with God rather than apart from God, and that's where we find real comfort and real joy and real wisdom and real goodness. So look to the light of the world follow Christ, and live with God in him. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for sending your son into the world. We would be lost in the dark without him, apart from you. We acknowledge that. That's a painful thing for us to acknowledge, that we've put ourselves in such a, a bad position through our sin, through our rebellion, through our grasping for autonomy and grasping for your own authority Yet you have not left us in the dark. You've not left us alone. You've given us testimony about what kind of God you're like and who you are and, um, and what you're willing to do to be reconciled to people like us. We pray that you would overcome all the obstacles in our hearts and in our minds by your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to believe this, your word about yourself and about us, to believe it, but uh, above all, to believe Christ himself, to entrust ourselves to Christ so that um, through knowing him, through having a real relationship with him, we have a vision of God, we have a relationship with you, which is our life. We pray that you would make Christ 
and the life with you found in him more real to us so that um, we would have something to share with our friends who don't yet know you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.